You're listening to the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Well, good morning. Good morning. Good to be with you guys. Um, I think a lot of you guys know that we, uh, we tend to plan our teaching series uh, and even sometimes even sermons uh, like weeks in advance, kind of chart a course for where we think we might go. We always kind of leave a little 11th hour exception though to say, okay, Lord, like you always get last pass just because we've made a plan doesn't mean that, that our steps are not yours to direct. And so this last week, um, just candidly, I, I had my message done on like Tuesday. I thought I was doing great and uh, really ahead of the game. And then the Lord kind of pulled us a different direction a little bit. And so... Um, Here's, here's kind of where we're going. I talked with our creative team. We made a couple shifts. Um, there's this kind of stack of, of painful events in our, in our world that we need to talk about. Um, they're all just really hard to sit with, especially just right now around the holidays. Um, I think globally what's happening in, in Israel, I think of war and conflict, uh, centuries of smoldering embers just kind of re-sparked here over these last months, and it's not okay. I think, um, well, I saw a headline this last week. It said, Jewish cemetery in Brooklyn vandalized with swastikas spray-painted on headstones. I'm like, what is, what is that? It's not okay. Think about what happened in our, our community uh, this last week, uh, Tusky Valley. Um, Tour bus full of high school students were in an accident on I-70. Six people lost their lives. 18 were sent to area hospitals. It was like, it's not okay. And I was talking with some friends of mine this week. Uh, just a friend of mine found an unexplained mass in her neck. And like, they don't know what that is. And you've got your stuff. I've got my stuff. It's all the stuff that just comes with the holidays, right? And you're like, it's the holidays. Can we just talk about like turkey and football or something? But this stuff just is up in the air. And... Um, all that stuff, you kind of throw up your hands and you just go, what in the world, right? Um, and so I think this morning we need to sit with these things a little bit longer. Um, here's the thing. Um, there's the right answer and then there's the right answer in the moment. The right answer is, like, what in the world? Well, we live in a fallen world and sin is the problem and Jesus is the solution. That's the right answer. That's the true answer. That's the complete answer. That's the one that we ought to know. But the right answer in the moment sometimes sounds a little bit different. Um, the right answer in the moment sometimes sounds like, I don't know, this is terrible. It's just awful. Should not be this way. Jesus offers hope. And I think that's maybe the best definition of faith when you say the right answer in the moment, it sounds like the choice to believe the thing that I am struggling to understand. Belief and unbelief, just acting on the belief part. <laughs> I think that's what faith is. And so we've been saying this these last few weeks, that gratitude is a choice to respond to God's goodness shown or God's goodness expected. And so here's where we're going today. One of my favorite places to turn to when I struggle to believe what I don't understand I go to Psalms, 
And so we're gonna be there. We're gonna be in Psalm 42 and 43 this morning. Um, And what we're gonna get at is we're gonna let God show us a little bit about himself in there. And then we're actually gonna have a few moments to maybe even turn our chairs, turn our heads, and and pray together this morning. We're gonna conclude with five minutes of prayer with those around you. And so introverts, I'm sorry, you can send me an email later, but if you're here with your family or maybe you're just here by yourself or if you're here with some friends, um, the things that I mentioned and others are worthy of prayer. So we're gonna get there. Um, I've said this before, but I think if Psalms had a subtitle, it would be Psalms, Permission to Speak Freely. And I love that about Psalms. Psalms is where raw emotions tumble out without the filter of self-censorship. Psalms is where our deep convictions are formed by reflecting on still deeper truths. It's where our hearts are encouraged and our souls find resonance. It's where the answer for the moment is supported by the true and real abiding answer. Um, if you've ever struggled to find hope in the blur of the pain, Psalms is a good place for you. Um, Psalms is not just an endless, meandering, emotional roller coaster leading nowhere. Psalms has a point, and the point is a person, which we're going to get to in about 32 minutes and 10 seconds. So give me a minute. <laughs> so today we're going to go to Psalm, four, Psalm 42 and 43. You can turn there, flip there, scroll there, or follow along on the screens behind me. Um, These are deep meditations that uh, teach us that when he chooses to give us an answer, God gives us himself, because this is our God. When he chooses to give us an answer, he gives us himself. So since we're first jumping in, um, let's get our bearings a little bit. Psalm 42 and 43, who wrote these things? You got to know. Um, If you've got a copy of God's word with you or even uh, a book form or in phone form, you notice a small print at the top that says the sons of Korah. So who are these guys? Korah himself um, lived during the time of Moses and was actually a pretty bad dude. Um, All you need to know about Korah is after God's people left Egypt, they entered the promised land and Korah led a rebellion. And he led a rebellion because he thought he should be the people, the one to lead God's people in worship, not the one that God had chosen. And so he rallied 250 other people with him and the rebellion got so bad that God takes Korah out of the picture completely. Uh, the Old Testament said that the, earth, or the, that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up Korah and his family. <laughs> the point is God takes worship really seriously. But the lesson must have worked because hundreds of years later, his great-great-grandsons turned that legacy around. King David appointed Korah's descendants as worship pastors in the temple. So during David's kingdom and all throughout the time of the prophets and the exile, God used this family of musicians to write about 11 psalms that give voice to everything that God's people were feeling. Another lesson in there maybe for you is it's never too late to rewrite the legacy. Anyhow. So these two Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43, um, they specifically fit into this time period called the exile. And if you don't know your Old Testament history, that's okay. Here's the cliff notes. God's people are 900 miles away from home. They're in Babylon. That's like from here to Orlando. Trust me, I Googled it. Long ways away. They got no freedom. Babylon is ruling and there's nothing they can do. They've got no certainty and they've got no timeline for when God's gonna make everything okay. So the sons of Korah, like every writer in scripture, God uses their times to give rise to their feelings that shape the writing. Second little bit, we gotta get details before we get into it. You'll notice that Psalm 42 and 43 look very similar. If you've got a copy of God's word in front of you, you can see that there's a consistent refrain. 
Um, they're broken down into the same rhythm. There's lament and hope. Lament, hope, lament, and hope. I want you to watch for this as we move through here this morning. I think it'll help you. Um, maybe you've never wondered this, but for those who have, the chapters and verses that we have in our Bibles didn't come until much, much later after this was written, um, like the 13th century. Um, so scholars determined that these Psalms probably were at one point connected together. They go together really well, and you'll, you'll see that as we move in. Last thing, and then we'll get to the text. Psalm 42 and 43 are lament psalms. Lament psalms. Lament is a decision to go public with the feelings of the soul, saying, this is not right, and I don't know what to do. Lament is choosing to unlock the deepest places inside of you, letting the door swing wide open, and whatever comes out, comes out. Really uncomfortable to do lament well. Lament is my voice uncensored. Lament is not pretty, and it's good. This is not a thanksgiving psalm. If anything, this is a what's with the taking psalm. There are no green pastures or still waters here. Instead, you get dry creek beds and empty silence. And with that in place, here's the thing. When God chooses to give us an answer, he gives us himself. And so let's get to it. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Isn't that great language? <laughs> in the throes of this cultural setting, in the middle of Babylonian captivity, the writers start out with this idea of thirst, something that we can all relate to, being thirsty, right? He says he's like an exhausted deer. Did you catch that? Way back at the beginning. As a deer pants for flowing streams, that's what he wants. He's exhausted. He's panting for refreshment. Now follow me on this. Deer don't pant when they're comfortable, just kind of like leisurely lapping up water from a gentle stream in some bucolic pastoral meadow somewhere. It's not the deer he's talking about here. The panting deer is an exhausted animal desperate for something to cool the dryness and the burn inside. His question at the end of verse two, when shall I come and meet with God? is almost rhetorical. He says, when can I come and appear before God? The Hebrew language here is really rich. It can also be translated, when will I see the face of God? It's like he's saying, God, you've been hidden from me. God, I don't understand what you're doing. I feel like I can't see you. You ever felt that way? Sure you do. Maybe you feel that way this morning. You're like, God, what are you up to? Do you even have your hands on the wheel of the universe anymore, or what's going on? It's easy to imagine the writer sitting in the gutter of a dusty Babylonian street 900 miles away from home. He's tired, he's exhausted from worried days and sleepless nights. He's frustrated. 
God seems like a silent, still actor on an otherwise empty stage. And he's afraid. What do you do with a God that won't answer you? As he sits down to write, tears come to his eyes. You can see that in verse three. Water that he'd probably rather see as refreshment. Maybe a passerby kicks dust in his face and says, aren't you supposed to be the people of God? Where is he now? And the hardest part is in verse three, he honestly doesn't know. So the only thing he can do, verse four, is to remember. For the Hebrew mind, remembering is more than just sitting back, wistfully thinking back on good times, like wishing for baseball and family barbecues at better times. Remembering is deeper. It is a willful mental exercise to replay God's goodness in the past. And so he closes his eyes and he remembers how good God has been. And it takes the form of gathered worship, He's in the house of the Lord with God's people, loud singing. And then, as if instantly aware of his soul's inner wrenching, he turns and he talks to himself. Anybody talk to yourself? It's a good thing. I talk to myself when I'm driving my truck down Main Street. I'm sure people think I'm crazy, but now all you gotta do is pop an earbud in and people think you're being busy at work. Yeah, no. He talks to himself in verse five. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you so in turmoil within me? Great questions. And then the answer comes. Hope in God shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Interesting thing, isn't it? We are creatures of belief, right? We believe things about God. We live in the hope of eternity, confessing the certainty of our salvation. But we're also creatures of time, we live in time where we experience the pain and the reality and the sorrow of the, of the moment. And this is the Old Testament version of that New Testament prayer. Lord, I believe, but gosh, can you help my unbelief? I think it's very helpful that the psalmist realizes something that most of us do not realize, is that our deepest need is not really an explanation. Our deepest need is not really for the circus to stop. Our deepest need is not for everybody to agree with us. Our deepest need is for God himself. All that other stuff is gonna make sense. There are answers. There will be stillness and peace one day, right? And we believe that by faith, but for now, especially, our deepest need is for God himself. The blessings that we enjoy, these things that get us through life, they are not the provision. They are the breadcrumbs that lead us back to the provision himself, who's Christ alone. And I know sometimes the breadcrumbs seem frighteningly far apart. But we don't lose heart. We believe he is good because when he gives us an answer, God gives us himself. So that's the first stanza this image of thirst and drought. And while verse five gives us a bit of a break and alleviates some of the tension, it doesn't last for long. There's this second stanza, and now he moves from like thirst and drought to this other image of overwhelming pressure of suffering in a fallen world. Let's keep going. Staying with soul talk, here's what he says in verse six. Is my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, Mount Mazar. These are places where God did great things in the past. 
Deep calls out to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all of your breakers and your waves have gone over me. I'm gonna stop there for a second. That's what suffering feels like. Deep calls out to deep. The deep things in me calling out to and calling out for the deep things of God. Like, God, I don't want fortune cookie theology, right? Don't give me like these quaint little platitudes like you see on Facebook. Like, don't give me just these little sentences. I need something else. I need something real and I need it now. I don't need cute aphorisms, Lord. I need you. Do you feel that? (laughs) This past Tuesday morning, like, I, I got the same news that you guys got, and I don't want to be dramatic. It's just, here's how this hit me. Like, I was sitting watching the news, and I talked to a friend who is a teacher in Tusky Valley, and um, band students, I-70, semi-truck rear ends the tour bus, and the first report is three have died, and then 15 were injured, and then six confirmed, and 18 are in seven area hospitals, you know, and I'm a dad, and I've got three kids, two of whom are in their high school band here at Glen Oak, and so I did something that was like too quick to be conscious, like I just immediately projected into that situation, and every parent probably knows what that feels like, right? And like something in me just kind of broke. Like, we should not have to have funerals for high school students. That's not okay. That's not right. Like, it's not normal that teenagers should sit in hospital rooms on life support. Like, that's not okay. Where dignity is peripheralized, the sense of peace is upset, Forrest Gump's mom is wrong, dying is not a part of life. This should not be. Guys, like, we can complain about anything. We really, really can But isn't it frightening and interesting how desperation brings clarity? When you are so desperate for God to move, for God to answer, for God to do something in your spirit, everything else kind of seems smaller, right? So I went home that day and I like hugged all three of my kids. I'm just like, gosh, I love you. The hardest part of this psalm for me is verse seven. Because he says this. Deep calls out to deep at the roar of your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. There's something we got to get there. Waterfalls, breakers, and waves. Where do they come from? Whose are they? This is where theology gets deep, and I don't mean to say that quippy. Like, who owns those waterfalls, breakers, and waves? Where do they come from? He doesn't look outward. He looks upward. Your waterfalls, your wakers, your waves and breakers. You see what he's saying? We can't rush past that. What's he saying? God sent the waterfalls, the brave, the wakers, the braves and the wake breakers. I have a really hard time sitting with that. And I have a hard time sitting with that because of what that means. Like, this means that God is free to allow hardship into my life as a means of calling me to himself. That is a massive theological statement with profound implications. And intentional suffering pushes my theology to a near breaking point. My mind goes to Job. Job, right? If you haven't read Job, he's the consummate sufferer. Like these waterfalls, breakers, and waves look like a Fisher Price kitty pool compared to what Job went through. Job was described as a righteous man who feared the Lord. 
blameless. He shunned evil. Job has seven sons, three daughters, thousands of sheep, camels, oxen, donkeys, servants. Like pretty nice picture Job. And one day, it's all wiped out. And Job's response, here's what he says. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I'll return. I go, okay, it sounds a little stoic to be human. Give me something else. And then he gets theological. And then he says, the Lord gives. And we're like, yes, that's right. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. All this stuff that I have comes from you. Yes, Lord, you gave it. And then he says, and the Lord takes away. Whoa. Like, this, yeah, this, I don't know if I can say that, Job. Because it sounds like he's accusing God of wrong. And I'm like, dude, get ready to get zapped. (laughs) Because that doesn't go well. But then just to make sure we get the right impression, the writer of Job offers us this editorial comment in Job 1.22. It says this, Job 1.22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's incredible. What's his point? The point is that when the water falls, the breakers and the waves come, we should neither rush to excuse God from the courtroom, nor should we acquit him of the charges because he's not the one on trial. He's the judge. And that is really, really hard. Those are his waterfalls, his breakers, his waves that he brings into our lives to drive us to deeper joy. And that is so hard to say. But here's the tension. Either we have a small God who never permits suffering or we have a sovereign God who permits suffering for reasons that I cannot understand. And in the first scenario, that's way easier gospel to preach. Like, that'll sell books, man. Live, live, live your best life now. Come on. You're not supposed to suffer. No, that's outside of God's plan. The problem with that, besides being unbiblical, is that on the path to a gospel that never mentions suffering, I sever God from his sovereignty, and I come out the other side with a version of God who is about as powerful as a goldfish. So what I have to say is that while suffering is a terrible consequence of living in a fallen world, and while suffering absolutely exists, although it absolutely should not exist, suffering must also be somehow under God's sovereign decree, or else he wouldn't be a sovereign almighty God. Something else, he would have to answer to someone else, something higher than him. Something else must be in control of the universe, not him. Some capricious, willy-nilly, out of control, waiting to slam the universe in the next tree. That would have to be in control of the universe. So you either have a small God who never permits suffering or you have a sovereign God who permits suffering for reasons that I cannot understand. And so this is just one pastor's take. Here's how I sit with it. I remind myself that a God that needs to answer to me is a God who is too small for me to worship. And that is a very hard gospel to preach. Waterfalls and breakers and waves. But the one thing that we've got to remember in the face of unreasonable suffering, and this is going to sound really preachy and maybe a little trite, but I kind of want to say it anyway. Faith is the confession that the God who sends the waves is the same God who will one day walk 
on the waves. And it's that idea that frees us to sing a song that we just sang a bit ago. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. Translation, God, if you can help me keep my eyes on you, that's all I need. And everything else can fade away. And I'll hold it a little more loosely. And so exhausted, overwhelmed, and desperate, we crash land into verse 11, the second refrain Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So first stanza, inward pressure of thirst and drought. Second stanza, outward pressure of overwhelming suffering. And now the third, social pressure, walking through constant darkness. Take a look in verse one of Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God and defend my cause against ungodly people. Well, that just got sideways. Hang on a second. Who are these people? What do they do in there? There's social implications for despair, right? Because you're supposed to be the hopeful ones, Christian. Paint a smile on. Climb, climb up Sunshine Mountain, right? Verse two. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Now, what's with that? You hear what he says there? You're the one in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? And one of my favorite theologians, Yosemite Sam, says them's fighting words. Like, you hear what he's saying there. I told you Psalms was permission to speak freely. This is the writer saying, God, I was running through a storm. I was tired. I was drenched to the bone. And I saw you. I thought you could give me shelter. So I went inside, and I found the comfort that I needed. But no sooner than I found the warmth of your love than you kicked me back out into the cold. And now here I am out in the cold with everyone who hates me, and you've locked the door. That's what he's saying. You ever feel that way? Like God bait and switched you? Sure you have. This is the most raw that the writer has been here um, because he's actually implying that God has a character issue. Please don't mishear what I'm about to say. But have you ever noticed that one of the marks of a real relationship with God is that my honesty can sometimes sound like doubt at first? Honesty sometimes sounds like doubt at first. Moses, Numbers chapter 11, he says, God, if you're gonna treat me like this, just kill me. Over dramatic. Jeremiah, in chapter 20, first he calls God a liar, and then he says, God, I'm a mistake. You didn't know what you were doing when you made me. That's how he starts his prayer. And now here we have the sons of Korah, Now consider who these guys are again, right? These guys are paid to be the worship leaders of God's people. They're the ones responsible for choosing the songs that they sing in corporate worship. They're the ones responsible for making sure the lyrics toe the company line theologically and make sense. And in their songwriter's workshop, they came out with this little ditty. God, you're supposed to be this, but in reality, you're this. We were taught you were this way, but we feel like you're this way. Everyone said you were a shelter, a tower, a fortress, a rock, but what good is a fortress you can't get into, a tower that falls over, and a rock that crushes us? That's their theology. That's their words about God. And it's in the Bible. Why? 
I mean, as gutsy as that is, what I also have to wonder is why would God allow that in the Bible? Because God, in this whole scenario, is like the record producer. These guys say, hey, here's the song we want to sing. Here's the lyric sheet. Here's how the song goes. They give it to God, and God goes, sure, book it. He doesn't say, hey, that makes me look really bad. You shouldn't say it. He doesn't say, no, you're not singing that in church. Are you crazy? He doesn't say that. Why does he allow this? Here's why. This permission to speak freely thing, God can handle my messy ball of tangled emotions. He's a big boy. He gets it. He can handle it. He's not sitting there going like, oh, I had no idea you felt that way. (laughs) It's not a mystery. He knows you really, really well. And so sometimes the best thing we can do is you go, God, here's what I'm feeling. I don't know what to do about it. You deal with it. Here you go. I know you're sovereign. I know you're good. I know all that stuff. Fix it. And here's where the psalm actually comes back to full circle. Go to verse three. Send out your light and your truth. What does light do? Makes hidden things plain. What does truth do? Straightens the crookedness in my heart. Let your light and your truth, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. So he's not running from God, he's running toward God. And then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. I will praise you with the lyre. Oh God, my God, why are you downcast, O oh my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And he's right back to where he started. He goes, I just want you. I just want you. Don't need an explanation. Don't need everything to be neat and tidy. God, I just need you. When God gives us an answer, he gives us himself. Now, what do we do with this? Where are we supposed to go? That's the text. I want us to understand what's happening in the psalm because I think there's something really important happening here that I want us to understand as a church. There's this really ancient practice. It's called soul talk. Talking to yourself. He does it three times in that psalm. At least you heard it. Oh, my soul. Why are you the way you are? He looks inward and he addresses these areas of unbelief in his own heart. It's also called gospeling yourself gospeling yourself. I know we've taught to think about, we've been taught to think about the word gospel like a, um, like a noun, like, oh, they preach the gospel. Like, oh, let me present you with the gospel. And it is, it's a, it's a, it is a noun. We've also used gospel as an adjective, like, oh, he's a gospel preacher or the music was very gospel, describes the thing. Gospel is also a verb. It's something I got to do. It's something I do to my own heart. I gospel my own heart. When we gospel ourselves, this is when we speak God's truth into the empty spaces between belief. (laughs) Gospeling yourself is three things, and for you note takers, we're going to put them all up on the board. They all start with the letter R. Here's the first one. Recognizing my unbelief. This is going, oh, this is how I feel. God, I feel like you've 
lost control. God, I feel like you're far away. It's just, it's vocalizing it. And you gotta be honest. It's probably gonna sound like doubt first, but it's recognizing my unbelief. Repenting of untruth. This is me going, God, I know I feel this way. I know it seems this way. God, I wonder these things. But I also know that that's not true. That's really hard. And then the last bit is to remind. To remind myself of what God's truth is. This is how you talk to yourself when you have times of doubt, when you have times of fear. This is how you gospel yourself. This is how you talk to your own soul. Recognize and repent and remind. That's all this psalm is. Three times. God, here's what I'm actually believing about you. Not the pious stuff I'm supposed to say, but like the real honest stuff that I'm embarrassed to say out loud. I'm gonna recognize that. These things aren't true. You're not a falling tower. You're not rejecting me. You're not giving up on me. You're not kicking me out. You didn't lock me out. That's repenting, saying the truth. And then the last thing is reminding yourself of what you know to be true about God. God, your word says that you're good. God, your word says that you're sovereign. God, your word says that you're holy. Help me close the gap between what I believe and the way I'm acting. The gospel is not something we just believe. It's something that we do. God doesn't want our empty words. He wants our heavy hearts. Last little bit, and then we're actually gonna head into prayer, okay? And so I wanna give you one last little thing to make this stick. That, that word that we've been saying, when God gives us an answer, he gives us himself. That sounds trite and preachy and one-liner, and you know I like that stuff. But I wanna I want to drive this a little bit deeper and maybe give it a little bit more color for you. Buried in that refrain, we find a three times repeated phrase, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. And then he gives him two reasons why. He calls him my salvation and my God. Salvation, it's a noun. It's this wonderful Hebrew word, literally means God saves, my salvation. Moses said this when he was at the banks of the Red Sea. Maybe you're at a Red Sea moment right now. You don't see how you're going to get out of it. Moses said, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of our God. Is that word. David said it when God delivered him from Saul. Great salvation he brings. Isaiah, looking forward to the one day Messiah, he says, my Lord is my strength, my song, and my salvation. Now, some of you might know this, but the Hebrew word for salvation is Yeshua, Yeshua. Literally means God saves, Yeshua. And so the psalmist adds these words, I hope in you, my Yeshua and my God. Now, here we are, like right about to tiptoe into Advent. Just like right around the corner. Some of you know this. How do you say Jesus' name in Hebrew? Yeshua. God saves. And so we're gonna turn to prayer in just a moment. But buried in the folds of this lament psalm is a 500-year-long foreshadowing of the name that is above every name. A king who sends the waves and the king who walks on the waves. The king who conquers despair, who's victorious over death, who loves you deeply, and whose broken body and shed blood bought your salvation. And so when I say, 
when God gives us an answer, he gives us himself. I mean that personally and literally. He actually said, here I am. And so we're gonna pray in just a second, but before we do, I need you to hear me out. Pain and suffering in the world, like we see on the news, like we see on headstones in a Brooklyn cemetery, like we see on our Twitter feed or whatever it's called now. <laughs> when we see those pain, the news feeds of all the pain, that's normal. It makes sense. If you don't have hope, because you don't have anywhere to put it. <laughs> but for Christians... We know that this world is not our home. We know that there is hope, that there is life after death. And the only way you get from here to there is through the cross of Christ. Death does not have to be the end. Fear does not have to win. Shame is not getting the final word. We know that the cross does. So as Micah and Allison come back out and we turn our hearts to prayer, let me urge you, if you've never placed your faith in Christ alone for your salvation, please, please, please consider doing that. You are meant for more than what this world can offer you. You are not meant to pick up the pieces of the brokenness around our world and figure it out on your own. Jesus has already done that. The suffering that we feel right now is a preamble for the suffering of eternity if you don't know the Lord. But these little glimmers of hope that we get every once in a while when the light breaks through the clouds, that's just a glimmer of what heaven's gonna be like. The only way you get out of this and into this is by trusting in Christ alone. And I have no other hope to offer you. I have no other easy explanation because God's word doesn't give us that. When God gives us an answer, he gives us himself. And so, here's what I want us to do. I'm gonna take five minutes. And I want you to turn to people around you. If you're here by yourself, that's okay. You can sit in silence. We're gonna have a little music playing. I want you to pray. Pray for the global events that were happening that you see on our news. Pray for our community. Pray for what's coming up in your life, maybe even this Thanksgiving or this Christmas. And commit these things to the Lord and say, Lord, I need you to help me through this. Lord, work. And then afterward, We'll sing a song of gratitude together. So turn your chairs, get together, and we'll spend five minutes together in prayer. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.